coming up this week on Sporting Journal Radio. I think there's a little bit of a misconception that we were trying to demonstrate that real-world fishing scenarios are, are bad for fish at, at uh, certain depths. And so anybody that says it's okay, they're going to say, see, he said it's okay, so now I'm going to do it. I have a second pen where we're using a descending device to get that fish down to depth quicker. Well, I'm inside. I'm just inside one of our snow bears. <laughs> you never know what you're going to catch on Lake of the Woods. I fish, I hunt, and always will. Broadcasting from the Alclair Outdoor Studios. Presented by OnX. Know where you stand with OnX. We're not just a radio show anymore. This is Sporting Journal Radio. That's right. Welcome to the show. My name is Brett Amundsen. Thank you for tuning in on the network by demand, sportingjournalradio.com, or watching this on YouTube. That's Dan Amundsen next to me over there. What's going on? Shoots the scores. That's David Eckhart over there. Hello. What's up, David? How are you? That's so loud. Did we give David any homework this week mm. since he didn't? Have we ever given him homework? <laughs> Probably no. should. How much have you prepared for this week's show, David? Uh, very little. <laughs> Good. Perfect. <laughs> great. All right. We, we got a great show. Uh, the last couple of weeks have been very, very interesting for us here on the show. We really appreciate everybody that's tuned in, that's watched, that listened, even the ones that disagreed with us. We thank you very much. And no. we thank you for the comments as well. And please comment below on this week's show. We got to figure out, we got to announce a winner for last week too. We'll do it in the comments here. Uh, but everybody who comments on this show will have a chance to win some Brand gear from the Sporting Journal. Radio. Wait a minute. <clears throat> we you agreed to it. I heard it. I heard no, it. I heard it. I heard it. I think no there's a cars. Toyota Tundra <laughs> giving away. <laughs> there's a new Toyota Tundra, but I'm the one driving it. You can you can ride with me sometimes, but I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it. Uh, but you might get a cool hoodie like this or maybe a coffee mug or a tumbler or a hat, T-shirt and more. Check it all out. I actually added a bunch of dog stuff. I wanted to try out some of the dog stuff. So I got a new dog bowl on there, dog bed, some dog like food mats that you put under like their uh, food and water dishes. When you say you're going to try them out, like you're going to sleep on them and drink out of them. Yeah. Or? Well, I figure if it's cool. good, if it's good enough for my dog, it's good enough for me. So, oh, so you're not the one actually going <clears> to <throat> drink out of the bowl. No, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and make sure it's good enough for Tiny Amica. And if it is, if it passes my my rigorous testing, <laughs> then I'll give it to the dogs. <laughs> no, we, we got some really cool new stuff there. Check it out. Uh, so actually, some new um, uh, hoodies. What else did we get, Dan? Some like quarter zip stuff. Sun shirts, some, right? Oh, yeah, we yeah. We got some sun shirts on the way. So I we've had requests for this, and I've requested them. Uh, fishing shirts with hoods, you know, SPF protection. And now we've got some we're going to test out and hopefully be able to sell to you guys with the Fish Hunt Forever logo on them. Or if you want Sporting Journal, what's this show called? <laughs> Words are tough. <laughs> yeah, Sporting Journal Radio, that one. That if you want that logo, I'm sure you can do that too. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully Check I just gave you more work. Check it, yeah, I'm going to go design it now. Sportingjournalradio.com. Fish on forever. I fish, I hunt, and always will. And what that means is we're going to do what we can to protect this lifestyle that we love, hunting and fishing and uh, being in the outdoors as often as possible. So uh, sometimes we disagree with some things that are going on. Sometimes we agree with it. We try to call it as we see it and uh, make sure that we are trying to further the discussion to make sure that we are doing the right things moving forward as outdoors people and, uh, and making sure that our elected officials who might make a law are also aware of our intentions as well, too. So uh, we do what we can to try to 
make sure that you can do what you want to do. And we've been talking about barotrauma the last couple of weeks on this show. We're going to continue the discussion. So it all came from a DNR research study that Angling Buzz filmed. They put the video out. Aaron Weeb from Uncut Angling responded. We had Jeremy Smith from Angling Buzz respond to that. Aaron wanted to respond to that. The only people we hadn't had on yet was the DNR. So this week, we have the DNR side of the story. Dave Weitzel is going to be joining us. And then we also have Jeff Sundin, who's been a part of uh, some of the citizen panfish uh, work that's been done here in the state of Minnesota. He's also a fishing guide. They're both up in the Grand Rapids area. They're going to be joining us in a little bit. Joe Henry will be back to talk about Lake of the Woods. And Lucas Mertens from Devil's Lake, from Haybale Heights Campground Resort on Devil's Lake, is going to be joining us from the snow bear, from his snow bear on uh, Devil's Lake with a report from up there as well. Dan, who are the sponsors this week on the show? Lake of the Woods Tourism. Lake of the Woods is the walleye capital. Plan a trip for this winter at Lake of the Woods or spring at Lake of the Woods MN.com. Haybell Heights Campground and Resort. Still time to book a trip to Devil's Lake. Learn more at haybellheights.com. Prairie Sportsman. We are so close to the new season coming up in January, but you can watch episodes anytime at the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel. So here's four YouTube channels for you to follow and subscribe to. Prairie Sportsman, Sporting Journal Radio, Fish on Forever, and then also Tazin Lake Lodge. I'm uh, going to be doing a couple of sports shows coming up for Tazin. So if you're going to be at the Northwest Sports Show in Minneapolis this year, I'll be there at the Tazin Lake Lodge booth. And then uh, I'm going to Chicago, too, for the All Canada Show. I don't expect any of you to be there in Chicago, but maybe. Hey, this podcast has reached a lot of people in the, the last few weeks. <laughs> That's so. true. If you're in Chicago, go yeah. see, uh, go check it out. All Can- yeah, All Canada Show. It's July. Yeah. July. July. January. I think it's a January 31st through um, whatever that Sunday is, February 4th or the 1st through the 4th, maybe, or something like that. So that's check it out. a lot of words. Taz and Lake YouTube or TazandLake.com. Uh, also going to be at the Deer Classic. We'll talk more about the Deer Classic and deer hunting with David here in just a little bit. But um, we should mention uh, some news about Red Lake this week, Dan. Yeah, you can land an airplane again. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> the vehicle restrictions have been lifted so people can bring their ATVs, side-by-sides, et cetera, et cetera, out of public launches. Uh, it was restricted just to resorts bringing people out but now the public can do it again um the ice appears to have firmed up enough again never assume all, uh, any ice is safe ice but uh you're free to go again uh follow your resorts guidelines i know some people are letting atvs and single axles out so uh stuff's happening and it's gonna get real cold so yeah more stuff's gonna happen like highs below zero this weekend yeah, yeah. gross fahrenheit yeah that's right I mean, we need it to build some ice. We probably could have done without the snow that we got this week, but uh, we didn't a, get a ton of snow. It was a light so, snow. It'll uh, blow off. We'll yeah. be fine. Yeah, I don't know. We got, we were, they called for five to seven. I'd say we got about six inches here, I think, on, uh, two, was that two, Monday, Tuesday? Mm, I don't remember yeah, what day that was. was. And another inch on Wednesday or Thursday yeah. or something. It's still <clears> light, though. It's, it'll blow. Uh, at least yeah. out where we are in the state with not a lot of trees. <laughs> the prairie. It'll blow. Yeah. Button bar. It's like, it's like we're the Dakotas, you know, people joke about North, when I lived in Fargo, man, it was brutal some days when, it, when the wind would blow and uh, moved here to Minnesota. It's the same. Yeah. Western Minnesota, pretty much the exact same. David's getting a phone call. Nope. No, that was me. Oh, Brett's going to answer it on air. No, it answer. <laughs> definitely not uh, a real person oh. on that one. So, um, all right. We got a couple other things that we want to hit hit on. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Before we do that, though, we should probably go up and check in with Lucas Mertens, maybe. Yeah. Let's uh, see if he catches a fish out of the snow bear. All right. Now it's time to head up to Devil's Lake to check in with Lucas Mertens from Haybale Heights Campground and Resort. Lucas, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you? 
Oh, you, I'm not as good as you because I'm stuck inside <laughs> and you're fishing. Well, I'm inside. I'm just inside one of our snow bears. So. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know, those snow bears, uh, first time I was ever in one was at your place up there. Uh, it's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, slick way to go. Pretty comfortable. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, when you come up here and you get a snow bear trip, I mean, you're going to pretty much eliminate the weather factor is, is, is the advantage that we have. Um, we've had a pretty nice mild winter, but as we all know, there's a big Arctic little blast coming down and we're going to be 21 to 25 below zero. Um, and as you can see, I'm sitting in a sweatshirt and, and t-shirt. So, or a sweatshirt and, and uh, tennis shoes. Um, that's the nice thing about the snow bears. It just lets you, lets you go out and enjoy your day, no matter how cold it is out there. Yeah. I think when we were up there, I mean, this is a couple of years ago now, but I think, we had like a 45 below wind chill or something like that. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah. it was, you know, North Dakota winter, of course. Uh, it was brutal, but it was, you know, we hopped in there and, and you get to move around and uh, it was pretty warm and comfortable. That was a couple of years ago now. I know you've gotten a couple of new snow bears. Is that one of a, that looks like a newer one than the one we were in, Lucas? Yeah, we, we try to keep the fleet up to date, I guess. I mean, we, we run them every day, so we get some hours and some miles on them. Um, I guess a lot of the new features now are there's live scopes in all of them. Um, some guys are still using the Vexlars. I still like the Vexlar. I'm still a Vexlar guy, but that live scope sure just makes it, uh, oh, it just, it's kind of like playing a video game all day is what it is. It's so much fun. I, and I can imagine, yeah. uh, what a school of perch look, looks like <laughs> on a live scope too. Um, can you give us a little, can we look around that? snow bear a little bit i want to see what the these newer ones look like sure yep so let's see for our radio listeners yeah, this is great this great, is great, great <laughs> go to youtube <laughs> watch us on youtube oh, so yeah. uh basically as the is the guide or the captain here he's going to sit up front and then you got room for three other guys um to fish in there um and then this one has well, it has uh, three different screens for the live scope. Wow. You got one there, and then you got the one there, and then there's one in the very back there. So the guy in the back corner there can, can see the screen too. So you're running um, one, one live scope? One live scope, yep. So we got five total holes in, the, in these bears is what we got. I like the chairs. I don't think you had uh, the chairs last time when yeah, we were there. I, I think I could sit in one of those chairs all day pretty yeah. comfortably. <laughs> yeah. For oh, sure. yeah. I mean, and that was one thing we found as we just, as we, you know, took more and more people out and spent more time in them, just the more comfortable we can make them, the more comfortable, you know, our clients are. Um, they all have two, two uh, heat sources now. So there's floor heat and there's, and then there's your, your uh, forced air furnace so on those real real cold days if your feet are cold we'll just throw that floor heat on and that sure makes a big difference oh yeah that's nice because i remember sitting in a in a sweatshirt and just regular you know pants or whatever but my feet got a little cold i remember wearing my heavy boots i think last time we were up there so that floor heat would be right. nice right and uh we're putting um aqua traction floors in them now and that mm. seems to keep them a little bit warmer too so Gosh, that's nice. Uh, how's fishing? How have things been? How's uh, we? You know, we our ice kind of came late this year so far. How's it been up there? 
Well, uh, we typically start our season the day after Christmas, and it was kind of nip and tuck. Um, everybody was a little nervous. Uh, we were probably sitting with eight inches at the time, um, with some places being open. But we've uh, Devil's Lake, we've been fortunate enough to not get any snow, hmm. and that's really helped our ice. Um, we're, I'm currently, I, I measured it before we came on, and I'm sitting on 13 inches right now is what I'm at. Okay. How, how, so, oh, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to mention that. Uh, so, what I'm doing out today is I'm just going out. Uh, our perch are kind of sliding a little bit deeper now. We were fishing in that 18 to 22 foot range, and they're still holding in there. But um, I'm just going out and, and looking for spots today that we haven't hit this year yet, just to see if you know if, if there's a if there's a new school there. Um, all the other snow bears are out. They're actually on some pretty good fish today. Um, some some perch and some walleyes. So but I'm just kind of out uh, doing the scouting, I guess. Hmm. Well, that's not a bad gig. <laughs> no. Need help? No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll sure. come help you scout. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Uh, how how the walleye fishing's been pretty good? Yep. Yeah, walleye fishing's been pretty pretty standard. You know, looking for some structure. You know, and that anywhere from six feet up to twenty foot where we've been hitting some walleyes, uh, buck shots, and just any and minnow heads have been just the key, for, you know, for us. It's been just kind of standard Devil's Lake procedure. Sure. All right. And um, how are things going? Uh, do you have, it's been kind of a weird year. Um, I know I've talked to some different places that have, you know, people have either, you know, canceled or whatever, had to push off or waited to book, you know, do you have, if people wanted to come up, do you have some openings and get them out? We can probably sneak them in in February. We're not a hundred percent full, but I mean, we are getting close, but you always have a, you always have an open date here or there. You might have a big group that comes in and, and you might have a, just a kind of an off day. So we do day trips too. You know, if you're just up in Devil's Lake, you know, for for the day, you know, we can take you out for a day trip or we can set you up with one of our packages where we're, you know, we're going to put you in our cabins and and uh, take you fishing and just take care of you while you're up here. They're nice cabins, comfortable. Uh, I was really uh, impressed with those when, when we stayed there a couple of years back. I hope this year, too, you know, we waited so long to get good ice. I hope you get a good ice until April, you know, like I hope you have a good March <laughs> and, uh, and it goes late. I know a couple of years ago, I feel like you had a lot of bonus time. We had a real cold winter and, and the ice stayed, uh, late. It seemed like, um, but so hopefully, hopefully you have a pretty good March up there this year too. I know that can be really good up there on Devil's Lake, Lucas. Well, usually if, uh, mother nature is going to even things out, we're probably going to maybe have a cooler spring. So, yeah, we might we might get uh, especially if we don't get any snow. Um, we're gonna build some ice really fast this next ten days. I would say a week from now we'd probably be sitting on twenty four inches is where we'll be at with the with the temperatures and and no snow cover. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I know we we were scheduled to do some filming next week, and uh, we're gonna go out with the DNR, and they're like, you know, it's gonna be zero. <laughs> we're gonna push i think we're gonna push it back if you know maybe the following week i was like yeah i'm okay with that i'm just just fine with that so all right well um what if people want to book a trip with you what should they what should they do what should they know what do they need to know sure 
So uh, we have a Facebook page, um, and I keep that fairly updated in the winter. Um, I'm not going to put all the pictures on there, but I'm just going to tease you enough. Um, so then go to our Facebook page. Um, we have our website, and that has all our prices on it and different packages. Or if they just want to call and, and chat with somebody, they can call me, and my phone number is 701-351-3130. Hey, BailHeights.com, Lucas Mertens. Good luck out there today, and thanks for being on the show this week. Hey, thanks for having me. Ice fishing season is here. This winter, plan a trip to Devils Lake, North Dakota. Not only will you have the chance to catch their legendary perch, but this year, Hey, Bell Heights has been catching big walleye after big walleye. And they're doing it from a mobile, comfortable snow bear. No matter how cold it is outside, you're warm and toasty on the inside. Learn more and book a trip today at haybaleheights.com. That's haybaleheights.com. We're back. This is Sporting Journal Radio. Thanks for tuning in on the radio network by demand at sportingjournalradio.com or maybe watching this on YouTube. Please like it, subscribe to us and share it and comment below and we will draw a winner from all the commenters and they'll get some free gear from the Sporting Journal Radio store. Hey, what other web website that you can subscribe to to get some outdoor updates is the Outdoor Feed at theoutdoorfeed.org. It's through the organization Aglow. It's comprised of over 500 members of outdoor content creators, writers, uh, brands, um, companies, tourism destinations. And every day we put up new news from the outdoors on that website right there. If you're watching this, you can see it at theoutdoorfeed.org. And one thing, like if you're in the outdoor industry, maybe you're a content creator, maybe you're a podcast host, whatever the case is, you should consider joining a glow because it allows you to network with other industry professionals, learn from them, grow from them, and helps you get introduced to different sponsor opportunities, different brands. And we do these things called media camps. And this year we've got another media camp coming up in uh, February at Lake of the Woods. We'll be at Riverbend Resort February 12th through the 15th. We're going to be doing some fishing. We're going to be learning more about the Lake of the Woods area. And all these writers and people are going to be filming and gathering content and then going back home and putting all that information out. So you're going to get to learn more about Lake of the Woods through them. And they're going to be going to there. Maybe they live out east. Maybe they live in Texas. Maybe they live somewhere else. That's the beauty of what these media camps do. So maybe you're a destination. You want to host one of these camps and get messaging about about your location out to these different areas across uh, the United States and Canada. And I think we don't we have people like in Australia or Norway or something. Too? I have talked to, <clears throat> there's one person I know I talked to with an Australian accent at one of glow conference. Um, I think Canada's represented a little bit, but we could yeah. always use more Canadians. It's the more diverse the group is the better more hunt. Don't look at me like that. No, you're right. Like the, and I say that like, if we get more anglers, more hunters, you know, you get a guy, you know, Frank Campbell's a perfect example for us. We met him and we went to New York to go fishing. New York City. Yeah, exactly. You, well, I was like Buffalo and Niagara. Right. But I never thought of going to New York to go fishing. Right. And now it's a destination I want to go back to again and again and again. And it really opens us all up to these opportunities. We can teach our audience, Minnesotans, uh, Iowans, Dakotans, Wisconsinites about going to your wife wants to go to Niagara Falls for the honeymoon or something. That's not all a bad deal. Go fish. Niagara and, River's amazing. And eat the best pizza you've ever had. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so find out more at theoutdoorfeed.org. You can sign up to get email updates while you're there. And it's usually a lot of those come from me. Just full disclosure. All right. Um, you just ruined the appeal. <laughs> <laughs> uh 
that's one thing we're doing in February. And then in March, we'll be at the Minnesota Deer and Turkey Classic. That's back this year, March 8th, 9th, and 10th. And uh, that's going to be at Canterbury Park in Shakopee. Really cool location. You know, when it was at the state fairgrounds, it was kind of neat, but it was, you know, you had to go into St. Paul. Parking was a little weird when you were when it was up in, in Blaine. Uh, it was it was a little bit different. Man, Canterbury is just great. It's a big location. Parking is awesome. It's easy to get to. Uh, so we'll be there. I think I'm, I think I'm going to be out there on that Saturday and uh, kind of bouncing around, making another film. Like uh, if you if you go to mndeerclassic.com, you'll see a video I filmed while we were out there, right on the homepage, and you can get a walkthrough of the event. I don't know if Dan's going to pull it up. Or oh, not. I can. Yeah, I was going to say I was making a funny that. You just want to go bet on the ponies. That's oh. why you really like it at Canterbury. That's, that's hilarious. Thanks. Nailed it, Dan. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> I thought that was funny. You have a gambling problem was the joke. Do I? I love to gamble. You don't, but the listeners don't know that. And now they're all laughing. But instead of it, are, they? La- are they? They're laughing at me. So Dynamite delivery, Dan. Well, I'm sorry. You know what? I bet somebody in their car... <laughs> laughed their butt off and now they're just laughing at me because you two don't have the sense of humor to understand it at least you can laugh at yourself Dan something like that I don't do that (laughs) so uh, Dear Classic well well, I'll be at the outdoor news booth uh, for a couple of hours there and then I'm going to be bouncing around and then they want me to stop by the Awful Watching Program booth as well and if you don't know about this it's Awful O-F-F-A-L yeah here's the walkthrough sorry it's a little late (laughs) I got a little delayed in being made fun of (laughs) must like my jokes yeah so uh, you can watch this walkthrough. I Anywho. think it might be on our Fish Hunt Forever YouTube channel as well or Sporting Journal Radio. Anyway, if you go to mndeerclassic.com, you can watch it. And then the Awful Watching program, it's about what's eating your deer's gut pile. So after you kill a deer, you got it. What's eating that stuff? They just want to know. So they put cameras on them, which I've done. I've been part of this uh, project now. And Dan, I sent you one video. We had a deer oh, carcass. Shoot, you're right. That. <laughs> Hang on. Keep talking. Okay. Well, you just said hang on. So I was hanging on. I'm hanging on. You keep talking. Oh, keep talking. You keep doing this. <laughs> Is show. that right? So it was a skunk. So coyotes joined in on the fun here, and the skunk didn't like that too much. So it was kind of like a battle between these skunks and the coyote. And if you look at that, the skunk kind of raises his backside, raises his tail, and you see the coyote whip his nose up in the air. But I've been down to that site, and there's no scent of a skunk anywhere. So I don't know if it was like a bluff charge type of situation and the and the coyote was like, oh, no, we're good. We're good. Yeah. I don't no smell thanks. anything. Don't get the tomato juice out. We're good. We're good. <laughs> I think that's actually a thing. Like, oh, my camera died. God, we've just burned through camera batteries today. That's <laughs> <laughs> been a long show. Anyways, I think that's actually a thing because I was turkey hunting once and walked right up on a skunk and the tail immediately went up and I ran about as fast as I think I've ever run out of there, but it didn't spray. And so that might posture. Yeah. They'll, they'll threaten you before they act. It's like pulling a handgun, I suppose, before you shoot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just letting you know I'm locked and loaded. Yeah. They're brandishing. Yeah. And, it worked. I ran away very fast. <laughs> well, it's funny if you watch that video, and I've got more videos from that trail camera. The coyotes did not go in there until uh, a few a while later, a couple of days later, and the skunk wasn't around, but a mink was around, and my camera died. I'm just so angry about it. The camera died, but there's a dead mink. Now, the mink is no longer around. Yeah. 
the coyotes picked that thing clean because I had cameras all around leading up to this spot that had coyotes all over the camera. So I know coyotes went to that site and I went down there and there's just a dead mink laying there. He like, passed. Coyotes did some damage to a mink, which is crazy. So anyway, learn more about that uh, program. There's a website out there. We'll be filming it for Prairie Sportsman. And I'll be at the booth at the Minnesota Deer Classic, 8th, 9th, and 10th. And David, I know real quick, you've been working on food plots already? Uh, yeah. Season ended and there was no snow. The ground was frozen. I needed to move a few trees, down trees, to kind of open up a area and make it to where i could get a food plot planted in there make a trail in and stuff so i, was, I thought hey might as well do it now no so, such thing and, as an uh, off season yeah, that's right that's right the season's no closed so next best thing is to get ready for next year and yeah went and cleared out an area i'm pretty excited about it so as soon as you're ready you'll be able to start planting yeah yep what are you going to plant in there um i think i'm just going to do clover in that one kind of a small little staging area before they head out into some big egg fields so is that now why would you do is that because is there a canopy is it going to be a little bit harder to grow any something different yeah it's still pretty pretty wooded but it's open enough i mean there's grass growing and stuff in there so there's enough sunlight for some to grow something and i wanted to plant something that's i maybe don't have to come back and plant every year a little low maintenance mm, that's so, the best yeah that's, right. I think, the angle I'm going to take on that one. Isn't it funny? I said this last week, too. Isn't it funny that when the hunting season ends, how productive a guy can be? <laughs> Start getting projects done that have been on the list or take advantage of no snow this year to get yeah. something done like that. All right. Well, we got a lot to get to this week. Uh, Dave Weitzel and Jeff Sundin coming up to continue the Barotrauma Talk. We'll talk about that DNR study and get the DNR's perspective on the, the entire situation. And we got to talk to Joe Henry right now. All right, now we're going to check in with Joe Henry from Lake of the Woods Tourism to see how things are going up at Lake of the Woods. Joe, how, how are you doing? You know what? D doing really good. You know, I'll tell you something. You know, the old saying is, you never know what you're going to catch on Lake of the Woods. And I'll tell you what, this last week or so, boy, I'll tell you what, is that holding true? Oh, yeah. I, I know Dan told me about the first one. And then as we were as I brought it up to him again, I think the next day, he's like, oh, and did you hear what else they caught? So uh, when you when you have a body of water that big and it's part of a river system, obviously fish are going to be moving in and out. And I've always been really excited about lake trout up on the Canadian side and obviously muskie fishing up there too. But turns out you don't have to go to Canada to catch those fish, Joe. No. Well, and you know, it, it, you're right, it, it, river system. And I would say that probably pertains as much to the lake sturgeon as anything. But then... You know, yeah, you got 14,552 islands. You got really deep water up in Canada. And in the winter, if we're going to catch a lake trout, as an example, on the south end of Lake of the Woods, it's in the winter. And the reason for that is the water temps, obviously, under the ice are fairly consistent. So that fish can be roaming around under the same temperature of water. So we, we get one every once in a while in the south shore of Lake of the Woods. The other one that was a big surprise is, we, I mean, Lake of the Woods is known as a musky fishery. But that's, that's up by the northwest angle, up amongst the 14,000 islands. You know, not on the south shore. We don't get a lot of them on the south shore. But uh, I'll tell you, this, uh, this last week or so, a 10-year-old girl from uh, Rice Lake, Wisconsin, pulled in a 50-plus-inch muskie on a tip-up. And uh, you take a look. If, you, if you're looking at this, uh, you know, on your uh, computer, your phone, or, or whatever, I'll tell you what, that muskie is huge. It is a freaking tank. Looks as big as her. It, well, it is as big as her. I mean, it's a big fish, you know, but the 10-year-old caught that. So kind of fun, you know, uh, 
I saw I saw an interview and uh, Dad said, "Yeah, you know, uh, we saw the fish go under the hole and it was like lighter colored. We don't get a, didn't get a good look at it, but it was big. And then you know we got that fish back and kind of realized it was a muskie. And it just so happened that when we when we pulled it back to the hole." the head was just positioned right it kind of came up the hole and gave me a a shot at grabbing it uh you know under the gills there and pulling out of that hole and uh, it worked out so uh but but what what a fish though huh pretty one too like that's a gorgeous gorgeous muskie beautiful fit big fish you know but you know i tell you of course we've been getting a lot of sturgeon i've been getting some sturgeon photos coming in you know people ice fishing on the lake actually and uh and and of course we you know we obviously our our bread and butters our walleyes and saugers and jumbo perch people are catching eel pout and then the poor man's lobster, of course, and uh, that's a little bit unique for some anglers. They can't catch them everywhere. And uh, but I got to tell you, fishing's been really good. You know, uh, as a whole, for a while there, around the first of the year, we were kind of stuck at a certain depth. You know, and we were catching fish, but as time would go on, fishing was getting a little bit tougher, a little bit tougher, a little tougher. We'd be beating on those fish. Those fish are moving, etc. Well, finally, we got some cold weather, and ice conditions were. Uh, improving so a lot of our, our resorts and outfitters to move their fish houses to some different territories some different ice and uh, got a little bit deeper and such and i tell you those fish were there they just slid out a little bit deeper and uh, it's been it's been really good fishing so far and i should say too same thing up at the northwest angle i mean uh, i just uh i just spoke to my brother and uh, he had a buddy of his who uh, was fishing at one of the resorts up there and said geez i think it's probably the best fishing we've ever had so far i mean it's been really good so far fishing so, Joe, we're coming up for an Aglow event in February. Uh-huh. And, I, of course, I want to catch some walleyes. I love to eat walleyes. I want to catch some so we can have a good fish fry at River Bend. But I just came up with a new idea. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't like when you say that. <laughs> I want to go to Lake of the Woods now, and I want to try to catch. I, I want to I get a lake trout, a muskie, a sturgeon, and a burbot. Well, that's All cool. So what, what I would do, first thing, first thing I'd tell you, you can, uh, I would focus your, your muskie up at the Northwest Angle in the summer. I'd, <laughs> <laughs> I'd go to the, the Ontario side of Lake of the Woods over to Whitefish Bay. Get out of the Northwest Angle. There's guys that'll take you over there in the summer. That'll, that'll work. Or you can do it in the winter too. Guys will stonebill you over there, take you over there. That's where you're going to get those fish. And then the other ones you'll get in the South Shore, no problem. Obviously, you want to get your eel pout in the winter. You don't catch a lot of eel pout in the open water. Um, although we did during the spring, we did. spring. You know, in the river, we caught a bunch. Now, we didn't catch big eel pod. Those are kind of the smaller ones, kind of the nursery. That was so, so crazy, Joe. And, I, and I'm sure it's it happens more often than we realize, but that seemed just wild for us to catch all those those burbot in the rainy river. And everyone and, doing it on the same day. Every boat. That was so, like, th- we were up there for, what, three days and nobody caught any. And all of a sudden, the one day, it was like, hey, who caught a sturgeon or a eel pod? And everyone's hands go up. Yeah. Like, huh? Weird. Yeah. There, there were a lot up there. You know, the one thing I'll say is that the water was still ice cold. There was yeah. still ice floating down the river. So oh, in, yeah. in that regard, and the fish were smaller fish. You know, for, for listeners who don't know, you know, really those eel pout are fairly inactive during the open water season. You almost always, you know, when you catch them, it's through the ice. And they even spawn under the ice. So to catch one in the open water is a little bit rare. I mean, it certainly happens. But for us to catch all those, uh, you know, eel pout in the river, of course, it was early spring you know in, in uh, april but that was during that sporting journal radio 500 that annual spring fishing tournament you have i should say too if uh if folks you know when you're fishing that rainy river you, know, you can easily do that in a 16 foot boat and 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 uh you know you don't have to travel far that's one of those little tournaments in the spring that if you ever want to join it that's a fun one and it's casual and you're 
rubbing elbows with guys like, uh, you know, Brett Amundsen. You're rubbing elbows with guys like Danny, guy. uh, Freddie, uh, Freddie <laughs> Amundsen because of the mustache, you know? I mean, you know, you're, you know, what else could be better? I'll tell you what, Joe, I, I've just started to put things together for that for that tournament. And uh, so the SGR 500 is gonna be back again, third annual this year, Riverbend Resort, although it's open to anyone fishing the Rainy River, April 9th and 10th. So All it's right. that last Tuesday and Wednesday before walleye season closes on the Rainy River. Uh, we'll have more details uh, coming out. It's through Fish Donkey. Uh, you'll be able to get all the info at sportingjournalradio.com. Did you say details? When does the uh, walleye season close on the Rainy River for those people that don't know? Oh, it's April 14th. That's correct. April 14th. Yes. So you can actually, and, that, and that's actually a good thing though, you know, all kidding aside, you know, um, Lake of the Woods enjoys an extended ice fishing season, first off. So our fish houses, certain parts of Minnesota, you know, uh, inland, you have to have your fish houses off towards the end of February. They cannot be overnight on the ice. Um, up at Lake of the Woods, we get a whole extra month. So we get to March 31st to have houses overnight on the ice up at Lake of the Woods. And then we also have some extended seasons because of us being border water with Canada. Number one, we uh, our walleye and sauger season goes to April 14th and our pike season never closes. So, you know, I say that just because, you know, people didn't get a, if, if you didn't get a good start on the ice fishing season because of thin ice conditions, tell you what, you can always, uh, you know, get get those extra trips in in March, you know, and uh, with some of the colder weather we have coming up, we're hoping that, uh, you know, um, our ice will last into March very well. You remember last year, geez, you know, I, I've been out in March where you've gotten a, a sunburn. Last year, it was still like winter conditions towards the end of March. I mean, we could have fished well into April. People were worried that we, we wouldn't lose our ice by the fishing opener last year. Yeah, well, we were watching it intently for the tournament last year. Of course, the year before, we fished in that snowstorm in April. <laughs> and then and then last year, we were, you know, they were taking chunks. Uh, they were opening up the accesses with excavators and heavy, heavy equipment. Um, and I'll never forget, Joe, that sturgeon that I caught last year. And we were anchored in the river and I hooked into this sturgeon and then all of a sudden these chunks of ice just started like beating the sides of Dan's boat and going around us and Dan's just like furiously trying to get the anchor up and put the troller down so we could get out into the middle of the river to fight this fish because I'm working it around big chunks of ice and it was a wild video what's that yeah you got it in right we got her in yeah we landed it all on camera you can see it on uh, Fish Hunt Forever yep channel for every youtube channels like share subscribe please that's absolutely correct and joe uh obviously people gotta, are gonna I gotta want to say one thing though you know i gotta tell you and, and this is kind of neat you, two years ago when you and i fished together one day uh, or maybe two days but we we remember it was really snowing all right mm-hmm. and i thought to myself oh geez i mean god it's been nice out and we're gonna be up there during the snow i'll tell you what once we're out there of course had the ice fishing gear on it wasn't bad. It was no. absolutely spectacular, beautiful. And the photography it made with the snow coming down, holding those nice golden walleyes. Remember how we have some photos of um, the, the walleyes, you know, you pull them out of the water, you hold them up to the camera and those fins are straight up. They're, they're so golden. I mean, such nice photography. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And it, it did make for really cool footage for uh, for filming and taking photos. And then even last year with the ice chunks and the real blue sky. Sunburn. We did get sunburn yeah. last God. year. It was bad. Was awesome. Remember the year that, uh, remember the year that uh, who was it that made, uh, he, he, we got some suckers. Uh, Corey. Sturgeon, Corey. You know? yeah. That was the first year. Yeah. Corey Loeffler. Yeah, we actually baked sucker. Everybody had baked sucker. And, of course, 
I don't know if the big suck was really that good or if it was the time of the night he said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember it being pretty good. Um, David probably got the best piece, though. Oh, yeah, that cheek meat. Cow, we have fun. Hold on, Danny. That's the plate you're eating, not the sucker. Here, do a little bit over. <laughs> I'm actually not sure I had any. I think I filled up at the at the restaurant. No, I would do it again. I, I have no yeah. problem. You know, so many of those things, uh, it's all in how you how you prepare it and so much of it is mental when you hear about it being a rough fish usually it's just because they're bony i mean even people eat carp around the world but they're such a pain in the, in the backside because they're so bony and walleyes have such a, a mild flavor and they're so easy to cut the bones out that's what they're i think what's what's made them so popular so i would eat sucker again no problem i just don't want to clean it or cook it no that's, yeah but you know, but how do you do, Corey? Corey, come up with us this year and make sucker <laughs> for the we entire have, tournament. We have fun at Lake of the Woods every yeah. time. I don't think I've ever been there and had a bad time. Have you, Joe? No, we, I have. The, story, the stories we have. I mean, we do. We have a lot of stories. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, every you know, when I say everybody's welcome, it's a very small group that ends up together at Riverbend. And you know, uh, uh, Brett and Danny put on that radio show live from uh, from Riverbend that one night. And heck, yeah, it's probably a. 20 people in the sidelines kind of 20 30 people hanging out just watching having a couple drinks whatever and it's really kind of a neat atmosphere and uh of course everybody's talking fishing and just a very very uh everybody's competitive but it's very very laid back tournament it's uh very enjoyable probably some live music from greg jones i yep. suppose sure. yeah, so. like greg's always playing well that'll be april 9th and 10th riverbend resort open to anyone through the fish donkey app more details coming at sportingjournalradio.com. And Joe, if people want to get a trip booked this winter to Lake of the Woods or start thinking about spring too, what should they do? You know, ice conditions are great. Fish are biting and there's openings. There are openings right now. Um, check out our website and that is lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Lake of the Woods, the walleye capital of the world is calling out to you. From the Northwest Angle to the South Shore and Rainy River, this is the Midwest's number one ice fishing destination. Walleye, sauger, perch, northern pike, and eelpout. The fishing on Lake of the Woods is like a world of its own. Experience the most amazing fishing through one of the many full-service resorts featuring heated fish houses, ice transportation, meal plans, and sleeper fish house options. For more information, go to lakeofthewoodsmn.com. This is Sporting Journal Radio. I'm Brett Amundsen. Thanks for tuning in on the network. By demand, sportingjournalradio.com or by downloading the podcast or watching this on YouTube. Thank you very much. Everyone that does uh, watch this, comment below, uh, like it, share it. Make sure you subscribe to our channel. Everyone who comments on this will win something from the Sporting Journal Radio store where you can win maybe a pretty cool hoodie like this one right here or uh, hats, uh, tumblers, mugs, things like that. Check it out at sportingjournalradio.com. Dan Amundsen and David Eckhart with us. And right now we got two guests coming, both from Grand Rapids, as a matter of fact. Uh, we're going to talk fishing. We're going to continue the barrel trauma talk because we feel like it's a pretty important topic to, uh, to discuss and get people talking about it, thinking about it, thinking about how their actions on the lake might affect may or may not affect fish populations out there. And uh, we just want to learn more and learn what we what might already be out there when it comes to uh, the research and data regarding barotrauma. So first we got Dave Weitzel. He's the assistant uh, assistant regional fisheries manager of the North Northern region. Did I get that right? Yep, the, the Northeast region. Northeast. I knew it. I just like that word doesn't look right. I don't know why I can't read my own handwriting. That's terrible. Do you, I know why. Because my handwriting's garbage? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's it's funny. 
in this day and age, I type more than I write. So when I do write something down, half the time I'm like, that's not spelled right. <laughs> no, no autocorrect. Where's on the, the autocorrect in this thing? It's broken. <laughs> Jeez. Whoops. And uh, that was, that's Jeff Sundin joining us as well down there. Both of you guys up in that Grand Rapids area. Jeff, uh, Dave, both of you guys, thanks for coming on the show this week. Hey, thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Um, Dave, I want to start with you because uh, we've had um, Angling Buzz on the show and then we had Aaron Weeb on the show. And the one component of this overall topic that started, that's that, that you know, uh, just kind of got this whole ball rolling when it comes to the barrel trauma talk as, as we are talking right now, is this video and some research being done by the Minnesota DNR and that angling buzz went out and filmed to to get the word out just a little bit. So I'm, I'm glad to have the DNR to, to kind of discuss a little bit. So thanks for coming on. Um, let's just kind of start at the beginning. This particular barotrauma study that's taking place, how did this come about? Yeah, basically, uh, you know, for folks that have been kind of following some of our panfish management here in Minnesota, you've probably heard of the work that um, we've been doing the last few years with bluegill. Uh, so we had kind of this um, citizens advisory work group driven bluegill project uh, that was kind of winding down. So as a group, we discussed uh, with our stakeholders, uh, work group members and just other anglers, oh, where do we go from here? And, and kind of the next thing that they wanted us to take a look at was crappie because, um, you know, when we look at angling across the state, uh, you know, walleye is still the most popular species, but bluegill and crappie are, are right up there with uh, walleye. And, um, you know, a lot of folks understand that our crappie populations get a heck of a lot of uh, fishing pressure. So we wanted to kind of have that discussion and see, you know, how does all this fishing pressure potentially impact our crappie populations? And are we managing the species in the right way? Uh, so when we started to look at crappie, what we came to quickly realize is from a biological standpoint, we actually don't understand them to the degree that we understood the bluegill. There's a lot of data gaps out there. Uh, these fish, uh, unlike bluegill, which are fairly consistent, um, crappie react different in different environments. So like in my part of the state, what we see is that our crappie populations tend to be really cyclical. Uh, we might get a good year class once every three to five years, whereas maybe out in western Minnesota, they see good production every year. In some lakes, we see that our crappies are growing relatively fast. In other lakes, uh, it might take 10 years even to grow a nine-inch fish. Uh, and then the lifespan's really different from one lake to another. Um, around here, it's pretty rare to see crappie living beyond seven years, but there's other parts of the state where we see them to, uh, living to be teenagers. Uh, so we really came to understand that if we're going to do a better job of focusing management on crappie, we need to understand more about where crappie management may work and what tools might be appropriate in different environments. Uh, and we knew that this barotrauma question was a big one uh, because we know that there's a lot of lakes out there that have deep water basins where anglers like to go and fish for crappie. Uh, well, we kind of have to understand how that uh, barotrauma may impact uh, the fish to come up with better tools for crappie management. Uh, and then the other thing that our work group pointed out is that, you know, they felt that maybe a lot of anglers really hadn't ever been exposed to barotrauma or didn't know what it was. So they were hoping we could use it to come up with some really good outreach material. 
so that people would have the conversation and really think about uh, how that deep water fishing might impact the population. Um, and, you know, from a personal standpoint, um, you know, whether they want to uh, focus more on harvest when they're fishing in deep water, avoid it altogether, or just be able to make a better informed decision when they're out there fishing deep water. I joke a lot that the DNR has a pretty, I mean, okay, so I want to state for the record that I, I criticize the DNR when I feel like the DNR needs to be criticized, but I also give credit when I feel like the DNR deserves to have some credit. I try to call it as I see it, and I w- will say that managing a state, the resources in a state like Minnesota is tough because it's so diverse with the different biomes and the different landscapes and the different depths and water temperatures and things like that. It's a tough, it's, it, you can't have a one size fits all management plan in this state, can you? No, and that's what we've learned, uh, you know, and I, people are very used to and very comfortable with kind of our statewide limits. Uh, but in reality, they're a good first line of defense but in places where anglers might value the fishery a little bit differently, um, for example, if you really value catching large bluegill, uh, the statewide 20 fish limit is probably insufficient to maintain that in a lot of lakes. And that's where really understanding the individual lake and really understanding how people value those individual fisheries allows us to tailor management on a more individual level and be sure that we're producing the kind of fisheries that people value. And that's the ultimate goal. Um, you know, the best management occurs where there's the biological potential uh, to do some kind of management action uh, to produce a result and that that result is something that people desire. We want to be sure that both of those criteria are being met. Yeah, this, so this study came out from from essentially from your anglers, so your, your citizen work group, right? I mean, and that you work with, with the DNR. I mean, this, this came from, this didn't come from the DNR. It came from the, the anglers and then the DNR put the study together. Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, we have a, a citizens advisory work group that specifically talks about issues related to panfish. It's just one of many work groups that the DNR has. Uh, These work groups um, are purposely designed to include a diversity of viewpoints from the fishing community. So we have resort owners, we have fishing guides, uh, we have just everyday anglers, we have lakeshore owners, we have folks that don't live on the lake. Um, trying to bring everybody together to identify, you know, what issues are they seeing with our panfish populations that maybe they'd like to see the DNR put more focus on. Uh, and this was one of those issues. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the the study methods in particular, because obviously there were there were a few things that were pointed out, uh, the, the vertical hoop net. Um, and then forward-facing sonar, of course, became a, a big part of the conversation. And, and reality is probably two, two separate issues. And we're going to focus on, we'll focus on the technology later. But I want to get into the the, the study, m- you know, the methods and what what you use, particularly that net. What? Let's just talk about what the goals were of that research. What were you trying to find out? Yeah, so I I think there's a little bit of a misconception that we were trying to demonstrate that real-world fishing scenarios are are bad for fish at at, uh, certain depths. Uh, But in reality, it's it's really very difficult to replicate real-world fishing conditions and still be able to recover those fish sometime later. 
uh, we know that a lot of mortality might not occur instantly and that fish might be dying over a 24 48 hour period so in able to evaluate that we need to be able to have some way of recovering these fish uh, and net pens are a common way that's been done in previous studies so that's the the method that we chose to work but we talked about this uh, with the understanding that it's a confounding factor that in and of itself could contribute to higher mortality so the numbers that we came up with were never really meant to uh, you know be literally interpreted that if i'm out angling and i'm immediately releasing fish that i'm going to see the exact same mortality that the dnr saw in their study Uh, but what it does demonstrate and probably a better talking point is that the physical damage caused by that barotrauma became much more evident at greater depths and that was consistent with other studies um, that we've seen um, you know primarily from open water systems or or studies that were conducted uh, during open water times a year I should say where it seems like we don't see a lot of barotrauma issues Uh, at depths shallower than about 25 feet but once we get beyond 30 feet um, those effects are much more evident that's i think one thing that i've been trying to glean from any sort of research and data that i've seen out there is what that what that magic number is and what affects that magic number you know how much how much a depth may be you know where it may be evident that at this depth on this particular body of water this is where barotrauma effects take place maybe it's different on this lake is it different on that lake is it different by size of fish i want you to answer some of those questions we've got to take a quick break um, but we will come back and uh, then we'll bring jeff sunden on in the conversation as well dave whitesel with us on sporting journal radio more on the way 852 million acres of public land 147 million private properties all in the palm of your hand The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. Don't miss the 2024 Minnesota Deer and Turkey Classic presented by Select Heartland Chevy Dealers at Canterbury Park in Shakopee March 8th, 9th and 10th. This year's classic features top hunting celebrities like Pat Nicole Reeve of Driven TV, Melissa Bachman of Winchester Deadly Passion TV, and legendary bow hunter Barry Wenzel. Get your antlers scored, view more than 300 antler entries, and see the latest hunting products, plus a great lineup of lodges and outfitters. Learn more about the Minnesota Deer and Turkey Classic March 8th, 9th and 10th at Canterbury Park in Shakopee at mndeerclassic.com. We're back. This is Sporting Journal Radio. I'm Brett Amundsen. We're talking about barotrauma and some recent research being done by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources and the subsequent video from Angling Buzz and then the subsequent interview and video from Aaron Weeb. And then now we have the DNR uh, discussing it with us right now. Uh, we we touched on some of the some of the study methods before the break. Um, and then I, I think we started to talk about what depth you might start to see barotrauma affect fish. And you brought up that 30 foot number a few times. How, how consistent do you think that depth range is? And do you think uh, water temperature, size of fish, type of fish, uh, uh, body of water, how many other factors do you think affect that? Or do you think it's pretty common no matter where you go? Well, I think From the standpoint of barotrauma in and of itself, keep in mind it's it's the weight of the water that's above the fish that's being reduced as the fish is brought from a, a deep depth to a shallow depth. 
and it's the change in pressure that allows those gases to expand. So that's really consistent regardless of temperature or other conditions. Now, with that being said, mortality on fish is affected by a ton of different uh, variables. Uh, so if we were talking about real-world fishing scenarios, uh, it's really hard to say that that mortality rate is going to be the same um, from one outing to the next because everything from handling time to, you know, certainly water temperature, uh, where the fish was hooked, uh, you know, all of those things have a huge bearing on the overall health of that fish when it's returned to the water. Uh, but the barotrauma itself, um, you know, the amount of pressure change that's occurring, uh, that's fairly consistent. So uh, the studies that, that I've seen suggest that around 30 feet, we start to see uh, those physical impacts increasing. Is there any research out there that shows some safe handling measures, getting the fish back in the water, that that may reduce mortality? I mean, obviously, fish stressors are going to affect mortality and keeping the fish out of the water longer obviously is going to have an impact. Um, but where do you think, I mean, is there any research that shows that there's variables that, that barotrauma, if you, if you catch 10 fish out of 30 feet of water, are they all going to be affected the same? Or how can we determine, you know, is there anything out there trying to tell us what's changing the effect on different fish? Does that make sense? Am I making sense with that? Yeah, and I, I know there's been some studies from like, um, you know, primarily marine settings that have tried different descending devices. Um, there's been some studies that have looked at fizzing, uh, you know, and in some of those cases, there have been methods that, that seem to really help. Uh, but not a lot of it's been done in freshwater, so I think it's a little too soon to reach any conclusions with that because the physiology of our fish are a little bit different than some of these marine fish. So it's probably a little too early to tell. I've seen a couple of research studies come out that talk about venting or fizzing. Um, I've heard some podcasts lately. There's there. I saw some people are selling fizz kits. Uh, I think they were more or less talking about bass, but I, I've always kind of been in the impression that fizzing can't really be healthy for, for any fish species. I mean, putting a hole in a, a swim bladder sure seems to be counterproductive to the, I mean, maybe it gives them a chance, gets them back down to the bottom and that's, you know, a last resort type measure such as a descending device as well. But I, I mean, I guess if it were me and I was down to a descending device or a, or, or a fizz, I'm going to use the, the device 100% of the time. But is there any, I, is there any positive data out there that fizzing or venting can be beneficial? Uh, not that I'm aware of from the kind of fish that we'd have here in Minnesota. And we did try fizzing on um, kind of a small subset of the crappie last year. And what we found is those fish swam down to depth, you know, more or less immediately. But unfortunately, because the swim bladder was ruptured, uh, after 24 hours, all of those fish were dead. So in the case of crappie, at least, it seemed like the physical damage to the swim bladder was such that it was contributing to mortality. Okay. Yeah. I, I just feel like you're putting a hole in a pretty vital part of a, a fish's body that, you know, when it comes to buoyancy and, and uh, being able to swim up and down a water column, it's a pretty, pretty important part of their, their body that you're damaging. Yeah, and, it's but. A, and it's extremely fragile. If um, I don't know if you've ever uh, maybe filleted a fish that was caught in deep water and been able to observe the swim bladder when it's expanded. Oh, yeah. But it's well, it's paper thin, maybe maybe the thickness of like a plastic grocery bag. Uh, so it's it's very easy for that to become damaged. And uh, once it's damaged, it's probably hard for the fish to recover from that. 
All right. I want to get back to the, to the study here in a second and then also talk about the panfish work that you've been a part of. But I want to get Jeff on. Jeff's been been waiting patiently to come on the show. Jeff Sundin, I appreciate you coming on. Um, you've, you've been fishing for a long time. So from um, an angler and a guide perspective, what are your thoughts on, on barrow trauma? Well, I, I run parallel to a lot of the things that Dave was just saying. There's a couple of little details that uh, I came into this maybe 10 or 12 years started writing about my website when uh, I ran into Bob Mesa one time down at the Minneapolis Sports Show. We were just having a casual chat, and I mentioned something about uh, catching northerns in deep water. And he looked at me, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go down there. Don't fish for those deep fish. You're going to kill them all. They'll never recover. And so I started getting interested in barotrauma at the time. And that led me to uh, study uh, Rebecca Ebert's up in uh, Saskatchewan, had done a study on it, and I found some others. In fact, I just published an article a couple of days ago that will give you links to a half a dozen studies that were done in freshwater. Uh, one of them was an ice fishing study. Another one was a uh, study regarding uh, deep water walleyes on rainy lakes, so on and so forth. And so th- those will all give you some basic understanding of what's going on out there. But the world that I live in, and uh, when you had your interview with Aaron, the world that he lives in, is the world of anecdotal information, right? The scientists want to study things and find out exactly what's going on. But a guy that's been fishing 40 years and has seen you don't really need a study to tell you that if I hand you a hammer and say, hit that window, the window's going to break, right? The, we already know it, and we wouldn't need to have a study to do that. When barotrauma comes up in my boat, it's just like Dave said. There's so many variables in gray area that you can't just give somebody one answer and have it be uh, the total answer. But what I can say is that if you want to do what's best for the fish, and this is run through, this is a common thread no matter who you talk to on the subject. If you really want to do what's best for the fish, just avoid fishing for them in deep water and you'll be okay or you'll be a lot better off. The, uh, the exact number, we see fish that apparently do fine when we release them in 28 or 30 feet of water, but we also see fish that seem to be really traumatized when we catch them in shallower water, 22 to 24 feet. And for me, it seems to have something to do, uh, and again, this is totally anecdotal, but it seems to have something to do with how much that fish wants to bite and how long it's been sitting in the spot. If you fish a spot maybe multiple times over the course of a month, and the fish have been laying in deep water every time you go there, they're always there. It seems like those fish are a little more susceptible. Uh, folks that have ice fished a lot have had the experience, you drill the hole, you drop your lure down, and the lure is six feet below the ice, and you can already see the fish charging up from the bottom to grab it. Hmm. When that fish is that hot to trot, and they're coming after your lure, and it seems to be voluntary that they're coming up into that shallower water they seem to do a lot better so you know how long the fish was there how hard you have to work to get them to bite seems to influence it 
and uh, whether or not the fish is actually on the move by himself or if you're, you know, just teasing him out of that deep water. All of those things are bad. Before I let it slip out, the, uh, the conversation that you were just having with Dave about fizzing, I was uh, ring and the subject came up and Brad Parsons w was at the meeting and he pointed out that before you discuss in Minnesota, before you discuss fizzing, you should keep in mind that it's illegal to do. So yeah. whether it works or not, it's not allowed in Minnesota anyway. So it's kind of a moot point. Yeah. Well, and there, that brings up a couple of other things. You know, one, I think, good point that Aaron brought up that uh, was a good part of our discussion was calling, calling. And I, I can't believe that calling is still allowed in Minnesota. I, I'm, I'm a little surprised at that in that it's allowed in the winter. Um, you know, Jeff, how, what are your thoughts on, on being able to call walleyes or crappies? Well, to be honest with you, I'm kind of like you. I wrote an article last spring, and I, I thought that culling was illegal. I didn't yeah. realize <laughs> how to do it. And so I wrote something about seeing some guys doing it. And, of course, you know how this works. The first thing I get is an email from somebody pointing out to me the statute that says that culling is perfectly fine to do in Minnesota. And I don't know if that has always been that way or if it was changed. Somebody else suggested that it might have become law because of past tournament people that uh, got it reversed. Maybe culling used to be illegal and then was reversed because of that. And that would require more research than what I've done on the subject. But personally, I think you should you should be fishing in situations where you're going to be happy with the fish that you catch. My ordinary day, I rarely ever come in with any one kind of species as a limit. I don't go out and uh, spend my whole day fishing for walleyes, even after we've got fish in the live well. We just release them as we go, and so the uh, the idea that you need to call, I think is kind of foreign to me anyway. I would rather catch five or six walleyes and then go catch five or six crappies and then go catch five or six bass. Just kind of, uh, I, I like the idea of showing folks what all the potential is of a lake or of the area rather than just finding one spot and beating it silly. Um, that's just me. That's a personal opinion and the way I like to do things. I know some folks uh, like to do it a different way. Personally, I would avoid I'd avoid calling unless there was some really compelling reason why, you know, something totally caught you by surprise and you just found yourself in a situation where it didn't make any sense to not return a fish and trade it for another one. A, a good example of that might be in our region. There were a couple of lakes last year where the, uh, the fish were reaching a, a length that was so close to the, the slot limit that it was really hard to measure them. And when you're getting into where you're looking at a one-eighth of an ounce or a, of an inch or a one-quarter of an inch difference, and maybe you got a questionable fish in your live well, and then you catch one that's well within the legal limits and you want to play it safe, make sure you're doing everything by the book. Okay, maybe it would be a good idea to release a fish occasionally and trade it for another one. But I would never see high-grading as a legitimate excuse for calling. I would just release that fish as soon as I caught it and hope that I'm gonna get a bigger one later. 
I want to ask Dave a little bit about culling and uh, and some of the other methods using that study, fin clips, things like that. Uh, but we got to go to the podcast. Hey, so uh, if you're listening on the radio, uh, thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more of this conversation, find us on YouTube or go to sportingjournalradio.com. All right, Dave, when it when it comes to the, the, the culling fish, how, do you know how long it's been legal in Minnesota or do you know much about that subject at all? No, I, I don't know a ton about the history of that one. Okay. All right. Well, we, 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 we'll just agree that it's probably not the best in most, most scenarios, but let's, let's go back to the research done on this, on barrel trauma with crappies in particular. And one of the other subjects that came up, um, criticizing that the methods were the fish handling and keeping the fish out of the water, uh, which you're doing a scientific study, you gotta track these fish, right? You've gotta take some measurements, you've gotta do some things. Uh, one instance of criticism re- was surrounding the, the clipping of the fins. Explain the, the reason for doing that and, uh, and the, the justification for it. Yeah, so the fin clip was basically just a way to for us to record a little bit of information about that fish that we could identify later. Uh, so, for example, if the fish showed obvious signs of barotrauma when it was caught, a certain part of the fin was clipped. If not, a different part of the fin was clipped. Um, that let us identify that fish later. Uh, keep in mind, this is a very small section of the fin that's removed, and fin clipping is very common. Uh for all kinds of different fisheries management purposes. We often take fin clips off live fish for uh, running genetic studies. We do it to mark fish and marking studies. Um, you know, and there's never really been anything that's shown that that's detrimental to the fish. Uh, and, and I think as anglers, we all know this, you know, how, how many times have you gone out and caught a really nice fish, but you noticed a third of its caudal fin was missing. Uh, The fish get beat up all the time, especially during the spawn. It's very common to see fish with eroded fins, and I'm not aware of that really contributing to higher mortality. And then looking forward to this year, obviously the study is gonna be ongoing. What what do you plan, you know, any changes, or what what do you think is planned for this year? And then how long will this continue to go, you think? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Kind of for this upcoming year, um, you know, once we get good ice and good conditions, our goal is to go out and do some more trials at some of those deeper depths that are over 25 feet of water. Um, You know, but we're really intrigued by trying to figure out uh, how much of a confounding factor the pen itself might be. So one way that we want to evaluate that is kind of have two pens set up, one with the same trial as we did last year where we're just putting the fish in the pan, Uh, but have a second pen where we're using a descending device to get that fish down to depth quicker just to see if we can tease out what impact the pen itself had. I think that would be very informative. We are going to try to refine our techniques a little bit to reduce the handling time. And then we're also going to avoid clipping or measuring the fish. You know, we, we already were able to note that the fish that had obvious signs of barotrauma, when we put them in the pen, those tended to be the fish that were in trouble 24 hours later. We probably don't need to repeat that part of it. Uh, we also want to go from a 24-hour um, trial to a 48-hour trial to see if some of those fish that weren't dead but uh, weren't fully recovered would recover given more time. And then we also want to attempt to track some fish just using forward-facing sonar and see if there's any merit in that methodology. 
And then finally, when we do observe some fish mortalities, we want to take those fish and necropsy them and see if we can determine what was, the, you know, physically what was the cause of death, what went wrong here. I think finding this stuff out is just fascinating and it's important research. And, uh, you know, you're going to learn as you go what works best and, and what doesn't work. I mean, that's all part of the process. So I, I think this is great. And I think you would you would also want to say the other thing that was brought up was that maybe this, you know, study that Aaron was real concerned about forward facing sonar and the, the dangers of forward facing sonar. Uh, realistically, I think I don't know if forward facing sonar was a concern of the DNRs or if that was maybe angling buzzes take on the on the situation. Um, but it's probably safe to say that you're just trying to determine the effects barrel trauma have at different depths. Right. And then people need to understand what using technology can do. It's not a magic fish catcher, like I said last week, but it definitely helps you find fish. And I've definitely caught fish that I wouldn't have caught without having live live forward facing sonar. I love the live scope. I think it's great, yeah. but uh, but the, the, none of this research was done to try to implement any bans on any technology. That, that's correct. It wasn't intended to broadly impose any kind of additional regulations, season changes, or limit the use of technology. Um, in, in fact, I, I'd almost argue the opposite. Uh, having this information is going to tell us just as much about where not to regulate as where to regulate. So, and I'll throw out an example. Uh, we might very well find that there's enough barotrauma that impacts the fishery that doing a reduced bag limit on a deeper lake with a popular, popular deep water fishery would simply negate any gains we'd see by the special regulation. You know, maybe those lakes aren't the right lakes for a reduced bag limit of crappie. Maybe we want to focus on shallower lakes. Uh, so I think it, from a regulation standpoint, it might be able to help us fine tune our tools and determine, you know, which lakes are most likely to benefit from regulation, but it's not intended to take away anybody's ability to, to fish where they choose, uh, you know, harvest up to their legal limit uh, or use the technologies that they enjoy. Uh, you know, and the reality is there's been discussions about technology is going to wreck fishing since the first green box came out 40 <laughs> yeah. years ago. Uh, and it hasn't. Our fisheries are very resilient, but I do think that as the learning curve to learn how to locate the fish and catch the fish is shorter, and technology can do that. We, I mean, that's why we enjoy the technology, right? Because it, it makes it easier to find the fish. Uh, I think there is a certain amount of responsibility that comes with that. Uh, and the other thing I like to remind people, our fisheries in Minnesota are a natural resource. So there's nothing wrong with going out and harvesting some fish, having a fish dinner. We just have to be smart about how we harvest the fish. Uh, if we're harvesting the right sized fish under the right scenarios and the right amount of fish, the great news is the fishery is extremely sustainable and we can have high size quality. We just have to be a little bit smart and a little bit responsible about what we personally choose to take and when we choose to take it. I think that's number one in all of this is people have to be personally responsible and they have to care about the fishery and they have to care about keeping the fishery sustainable and, you know, not not to over harvest. And I don't think any of us and, and Jeff, maybe you can weigh on this, too. I don't think any of us want to see any sort of, res, you know, real restrictions put on anglers, more about education and people accepting responsibility from what they're doing out there. And I've got a lot of friends that are guides. I've done it. Um, I'm not going to knock on the guides, but I think there are definitely some guides 
ride services out there that uh, maybe take uh, a couple extra trips each day out there. From a guide's perspective, Jeff, what what do you think the future of uh, of you know say panfish regulations how they should look? Well, the first thing I want to say the uh, I'm, I'm not a DNR biologist, but I have been participating in a lot of these work groups and uh, I know an awful lot of these folks and I've been to a lot of meetings and if there has been anybody throughout the last 15 or 20 years if there's anybody that expresses concern about technology and wants to impose restrictions it's not coming from the DNR it's coming from our fellow anglers it's the it's one guy who likes the way he does it but he doesn't like the way you do it. And so he wants you to stop your way and do it his way. And uh, there, if there's any kind of movement at all with regard to the forward-facing sonar, it's coming from anglers, and it's not coming from the anglers that you'd expect. It's, it's coming from anglers who know how to use the technology. And I think when you're familiar with it, it kind of scares you more than it scares the average angler out there because you understand how powerful a tool it is when somebody else might just think it's a cool thing to use. You know, it's, it does maybe help a little bit and they can see the fish and it oohs and ahs, but not necessarily, they don't understand the full power that they've got at their fingertips. Um, and this, the, the personal responsibility part of it, I think is another, that's a common thread. And uh, you notice when you go to my website, you don't get a pop-up ad trying to sell you something. You don't get redirected to a sponsor or anything like, I get up in the morning and I write that stuff and it's all for free and anybody that wants to use it can use it. It's just plain information. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, the commercial side of things. So what I to address some of your concerns, you know, other guides that uh, – do two trips a day. That's been going on quite a while, by the way, but uh, this definitely makes that easier. I can't tell them what to do. Uh, I can only influence the system by setting a good example. I do, and that's what I do. I try to, I try to do things as close to what makes good sense as I possibly can. And if some folks see that and pick up on it and follow along, that winds up being great. This barotrauma is a good example of that you know the panfish committee that dave spoke about i've been a volunteer on that committee and i've mentioned barotrauma several times over the years i've written about it for a long time for maybe eight or ten years it seemed like nobody really cared about it and all of a sudden now it's hitting the mainstream news it's kind of everybody's talking about it it took a long time but just simply putting the information out there is enough to get people thinking. And then uh, if you get enough people doing that, everybody's thinking what's best for the fishery. How can I make a, a little bit better than it was when I found it? Then down the road, you don't have people pushing and shoving, trying to be the first in line to reduce a bag limit or ban some sort of electronics. And uh, when you get the, the responsibility that comes with using all this stuff, like Dave said, the way I look at it, the biggest responsibility we have is just to ourselves. Yeah. Because all of us just want to go out and catch more fish. It it's, doesn't have anything to do with uh, bold than that. We all just want good fishing, right? 
and you want your fishing to go the way you want it to go, and I want mine to go the way I want it to go. But none of it works if we don't sustain the the fish populations, and we can do that. We can help with that just by going out. A good example being uh, being a proper role model for our fellow anglers, I think, is a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say the one thing, you know, when I don't want to keep going back to Aaron's video, but he, you know, his concern may not rest with say the DNR, particularly the biologists, the guys out there doing the work who are probably fishing on their days off. But when you have, and I don't want to talk about crossbows. I know Dan does, but <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> when you have a situation where lawmakers just changed the law and really the DNR didn't really have much say in that, that's where the worry is. And when you see other states appointing heads of game management agencies that are maybe have different viewpoints than hunters and anglers, that's a serious issue. And that's a road we don't, no one wants to go down and we don't want to see that happen here in Minnesota. So there is a legitimate concern about making sure that we're not making forward-facing sonar the enemy, but education, I think, is important so that we understand and hold ourselves accountable to know that if we do get on a really good bite and that forward-facing sonar is helping us not to exploit that opportunity uh, while we're out there. Um, Dave, I want to talk about uh, if there's anything else about the this barrel trauma study that we've left out, feel free to bring it up here or anything else you want to say about it. But I kind of want to just, before we let you go, we're running out of time here, but before we let you guys go, um, I just broadly want to talk about panfish management in the state of Minnesota. And we, we touched on the, the, the quality bluegill initiative, quality sunfish. Um, where are we at with all of that right now? And uh, what, just briefly summarize that work that you've been doing around panfish in the recent years? Yeah, uh, it's, it's actually been an extremely exciting time for panfish management in Minnesota. Um, you know, I've personally seen a lot of fisheries that are in very good shape that, um, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years around Grand Rapids have actually even improved in terms of size quality. Uh, and one of the biggest drivers uh, that's contributing to that. Uh, and we know this through some of our um, mail-in surveys uh, that are conducted with the University of Minnesota, uh, but also um, through some of our work group efforts and other outreach efforts, uh, is that we're finding that anglers really value at least some opportunities to catch large panfish. And that wasn't always the case. When I started my career, I think panfish were primarily valued for the harvest of panfish. Uh, but attitudes have slowly changed over time. Uh, so people are more willing to think about maybe trying some experimental regulations on lakes uh, or even on lakes that don't have experimental regulations. They're thinking about whether or not they actually need to harvest their full limit of fish. Uh, you know, in reality, if everybody was to agree to only limit uh, themselves to the amount of fish they needed for a meal at one time, uh, we probably wouldn't need a lot of special regulations um, because harvest would be essentially taking care of itself through voluntary efforts. Um, but as far as where we're at with like our bluegill, uh, we're pretty happy with how that program uh, ended up uh, working out. Um, you know, it was a long effort that really started with this panfish work group. I think we reformed the work group back around 2015. Uh, and at that, that time, we asked the members, uh, you know, what's the number one concern you have just with panfish in general across the state of Minnesota? And they felt that it was uh, 
the number of lakes that had big bluegill had declined or maybe they weren't finding the big fish that they used to or that the lakes that did have big bluegill they felt had an increase in fishing pressure so they really asked us to focus on what could be done for bluegill uh, so we talked, you know, really over a three-year period about every option under the sun, whether it be seasons or statewide limit changes. Uh, but ultimately, what we decided is that bluegill fisheries are different. Not every lake has the right ingredients to produce big bluegills. And maybe we should focus on the lakes that have the best ingredients uh, to produce a big bluegill. So we asked our biologists to identify lakes in their work areas that could potentially benefit from a reduced bag limit. And we came up with a list of about 150 lakes. Well, that's only half of the puzzle because uh, for a regulation to work, it needs to have the biological potential to make a difference, but it also needs social support. You know, our goal is to provide fisheries that people value, not necessarily to have that fishery produce its maximized or its maximum. All right. Yeah. You were saying you don't, you were basically talking about you, you don't want to manage a lake just for the biggest fish, you want to manage the lake for the best angler opportunity. Yeah, cor correct. It does us no good to produce fish that people don't enjoy. Uh, so to understand that, we need to know how people value the fisheries. And what we found is that on a lot of lakes that did have big bluegill, people valued catching big bluegill. And they were willing to keep fewer fish if that meant that that fishery could be maintained. Uh, so ultimately, we proposed uh, five or ten fish bag limits on um, – about 150 lakes around the state and ended up moving forward with new regulations in 20 and 21 um, on 146 of those lakes. So if you add that to the existing list, um, before that we had 57 lakes. We're at about 200 lakes right now that have a special regulation for bluegill, which is right within that uh, original goal that we set for ourselves based on what the biology was telling us. But again, our, our goal is to really meet that intersection where the biological potential and the angler values intersect. That's where good fisheries management occurs, and that's our goal. Have you had a chance to, to see any results yet, or when will you start to look at how these regulations are affecting the fish? Yeah, uh, um, you know, I should back up. Prior to this Quality Sunfish Initiative, there were about 60 lakes around the state that had already uh, gone through some period of time with the special regulation. About 20 of them had had the regulation on for a long enough time that we could evaluate them. And sure enough, it seemed like a 10-fish bag limit was maintaining good size quality in lakes that already had good size quality. And with a five-fish limit, we actually saw some improvement. So we did have a small set of lakes um, that were kind of a pilot that would suggest that these limits were appropriate. Uh, now we've expanded that to you know, nearly 150 new lakes. The plan there uh, is that uh, we've already collected a couple of years of pre-regulation data on those lakes. So we know what the population looked like before the regulation went into effect. Uh, we'll do probably a mid-regulation checkpoint at about five years. Uh, but the real, um, the real interesting information will occur in about the 10th and 11th year when we hope to do back-to-back -back surveys on these lakes. That way we can look at the population uh, 10 years after the regulation's been around and compare it to how it looked before the regulation went into effect to determine if those regulation goals were actually met or not. 
And that 10 year is important because that's generally what it takes to grow up a trophy size, what's considered a trophy size bluegill, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Generally speaking, they only grow about an inch a year. Um, So in a lot of lakes, uh, a quality eight inch bluegill is eight years old. Uh, And in, um, you know, most of our lakes, uh, they can to be, uh, they can live to be 10 years old. We do see some teenage fish, uh, but about a 10 year lifespan is typical for for a bluegill. All right. Well, it's it's interesting stuff and uh, interesting stuff, and I'm excited to be a, a part of it this year to learn about uh, anything more we can learn about barotrauma, all the stuff that we can learn, and and finding the the best methods to determine uh, the the research and and how to figure it all out. Um, Dave, I appreciate the time here on the show, and I'm I'm assuming we can find out more about this information on the DNR website. Uh, I'm not sure if we have anything dedicated to the Baratrauma stuff. It is part of our outreach plan. Maybe that's plan. On, um, on the Angling Buzz website then, I bet. Is that where we saw it, Dan? Yeah, you had yeah. it pulled up earlier. Probably. But uh, like the, the QBI, QSI stuff, that's on. That's out there as well? Yep, we have a sunfish page that's uh, you know one of the sub pages of the DNR webpage. But the other thing that I like to remind our stakeholders is we have 29 area fisheries offices uh, that are spread out through the state of Minnesota. Give us a call. There's nothing that we like better than uh, hearing from our stakeholders, um, you know, and hearing from them directly. It helps us out tremendously when we're putting together things like our lake management plans. Uh, so feel free to uh, look us up. Give us a call. We'd love to talk to you. All right. And Jeff Sundin, I appreciate you coming on. And is there anything you would like to, to add about this research or the future of panfish management in Minnesota? Well, not so much that, but you touched on the uh, you touched on the education and the personal responsibility. And I want to thank you for having this program and the ongoing discussion, because this is part of the education process and folks that uh, do their best to give both sides of the, the story and try to get the accurate information out there, I think helped everybody. You have to be a little careful. Uh, the one thing that concerned me about some of the trends we've seen lately in public commentary are if you make a declaration that it's safe to release a fish in 35 feet of water, there's a lot of folks out there that are using that information to justify their behavior, their they're using that because what they want to do is go out and fish fish because it's easy. And so anybody that says it's okay, they're going to say, see, he said it's okay, so now I'm going to do it. And I think that's part of our personal responsibility as educators to make sure that when we do put information out there, it's accurate and it's meaningful and people can take it to the bank and rely on it because uh, a lot of the things that happen in fisheries – when you mentioned the legislature getting involved, they don't just wake up in the morning and decide to do that. Somebody plants that seed in their brain and then they go and take action on it. And like I said earlier, uh, when you're talking about the DNR, particularly when you're talking about the field people, the, the biologists and the scientists, the people that are out in the field doing this stuff, they're not interested in figuring out how to get rid of fishing. That, that may exist someplace in the organization, but it's within the tall buildings, not out on the shore of the lake. So I kind of, I, I maybe sound like I'm defending the DNR, and I am because I, I kind of know the difference and I've seen how the two different halves of it work. And uh, don't leave these field guys in the dust just because you think that uh, 
somebody down in St. Paul is making a bad decision once in a while. I totally agree with that. I've never, I, that's a great way to say it. The guys in the tall buildings. Yeah, I know. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you know, and that, and I will, you know, I'll, I'll, I, that's one thing I, I criticized Aaron a little bit about because, and, and to his credit, he did say many times in his video, don't fish deep. But in this day and age of short attention spans and the comments that we have gotten, my gosh, all the people that are, that are big fans of his have just, it's been an onslaught of comments and uh, some good, some not so good, some, some interesting ones, but the, so many of them had that message that, well, he released them safely. It's, it's fine. We can fish in deep water. If we're just, if we get the air out of the mouth and give them a little nudge, then, then, it, then they're going to be fine. And defending Aaron a little bit, I think he was trying to show that, Hey, don't do it. If you do it, you know, th this can be a, a, a measure that you can take as a, you know, almost like a descending vice device, last resort type measure to help that fish survive here are some fish handling measures but again a lot of people didn't take that message they took that it was okay to fish deep and that was the issue that we had as well so man guys uh, this has been great i i think we could have this conversation for hours unfortunately we don't have that much time um but i really appreciate both of you guys coming on and i'm looking forward to more research being done and um you know and and, and learning more and keeping people uh in the know and and understanding that they they're responsible they are the ultimately the ones responsible for a, the future of, of hunting and fishing uh yeah there's there's management agencies and lawmakers but it's the people out there doing it and making sure that they do it the right way that are going to ensure that we have a future doing what we love to do so dave weitzel and uh, jeff sunden appreciate the time on the show guys thanks for thank you sporting journal radio is a division of macaba llc if you've got a question, comment, or story idea for us, send us an email. Go to sportingjournalradio.com. While you're there, you can learn how to advertise on the show and visit our store for hats, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Go to sportingjournalradio.com.